I want to start just by diving right into the text. Uh, Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. This is history. The Bible is real history. And here we see this scene in the history of Israel. And the Israelites had many surrounding nations, uh, enemy nations, competing nations. Some nations were friends, but mainly at that time there was a lot of territorial competition going on and whoever had the most land, I mean similar still to today, whoever had the most land was the strongest. And so there came times during the year where countries and nations and kings would draw up their armies and regularly go out to battle and to challenge and and perhaps try to take more land or to completely conquer a nation. And so here the Philistines were a perennial uh, enemy, just a, like a mosquito, just an annoying pest that would come uh, continuing to batter and, and, and knock on the Israelites' door. And so here they gather for their, arm, their armies for battle. Now, not only do we have history here, but as we read Scripture, there are many implications for life as well. And while this is a real historical story, and it's not meant to just be an allegory, at the same time, it, it does make us think, and we're allowed to apply this to our lives. And so I want to ask you the question, what battle are you going through in life today? We all have our battles. Now, beyond battles, we love champion stories, don't we? We love Rocky, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4. I don't know how many Rockies there are, but I remember seeing my first Rocky movie, and I just loved it. I was so inspired, and I wanted to become a boxer because of Rocky. We love movies like Rudy. We love just the underdog story, and and each of us could probably share a champion story that uh, inspires us. Now, one story that came to mind this week is uh, the the story, the real story of Nelson Mandela uh, and uh, using uh, rugby, the sport of rugby, to just melt some of the the ice of apartheid uh, after he became president and came out of prison. And perhaps you've seen this movie, Invictus, and the name of the movie is based on a poem that Nelson Mandela used uh, and he recited it to the captain. His name uh, slips my mind right now, but the captain of South Africa's rugby team, which was all white at the time. But Nelson Mandela brought this team together and used this team in the sport because the uh, World Cup of Rugby was being held in South Africa in 1995. And he quoted this poem, which inspired the captain of this team also to rally his men for this great cause. And so here are the words of that poem written by William Ernest Henley in 1875. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I tried to find the 
religious background of William Henley. I couldn't find anything. But this poem, while it is inspiring, and even in our modern history, it was pivotal to see a flood of breaking apartheid down in South Africa come to fruition. And the instance between Nelson Mandela and this team captain made this poem famous. But here's what I contend with you. As we consider the question, what are you battling? I I contend with this poem that this poem is actually, yes, it's a champion's poem. And it inspires to crash through quitting points, to never give up, to fight even to the point of blood on your brow and, and to cower at nothing. But at the end, those clear lines, I am the captain of my own soul. Here, William Henley, he speaks of a self-salvation, saving yourself. Each of us, every day, every week, every month, every season in life, we fight some kind of battle. During or Tomorrow morning, some of us are going to fight battle in traffic. Some of us are going to fight battle with the weather. Some of us will be battling a deadline. The past 12 days after Linda's car uh, accident, I've been battling the insurance company, right? We battle in sports. We battle in egos and differences in relationships. We battle disease. We battle our own bad habits. This past week, if you have some young children, perhaps they also battled cancer by running in the Terry Fox run and and trying to fundraise for this good cause and this battle against disease. And Emma herself, um, she had a reflective moment and she said, Daddy, I'm looking forward to the Terry Fox run. And in our family, Linda's father has has cancer. She said, I'm going to run for Grandpa. And it was a a nice, sweet moment to see this little champion in in this five-year-old. But as we battle... We really can think either, like William Henley, I'm going to be the captain of my own soul, the master of my own fate, and muster up the strength, flex as much muscle as we can, and to take life by the horns, and to have a clear conscience at the end that we did everything we could. And that's noble. It's noble. But in this anecdote, this intersection of David's life, he presents to us a a different approach to the battles in our life. And the big idea, the big burden that I see in today's text is this, that the Gospel King, and now as we try to look under the biblical story and see the more important foundation of the undercurrent of the Gospel story, the Gospel King, who is Jesus, He fights. He fights. You don't have to fight. He fights your greatest battle for you. And it's a fundamental, radically different, 180 degree different perspective from William Henley, from the majority of the world's attitude. That you have to be a master of your own fate. And here, in essence, in short, What David shows us is that he completely, as mighty of a warrior as he was, we're going to see that he completely threw himself, his fate, into the hands of someone greater than him. 
the gospel king, Jesus. And so the three questions that I want to ask of the text today are this. Who is your king in the battles of life? Who is your king? Who fights for you? Second, how dependable is your king in these battles of life? And third, what does your king do for you in the battles of your life? Because there, as we will see, there, there, we will all have our battles, but there are battles greater than the traffic, than the insurance company, than even cancer itself. There's a greater battle. And in this great test battle, these questions, we need to have a clear answer to them. So first, who is your king in the battles of life? Now, where do we see this? As the narrative picks up in verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. I want you to notice that the author, he leads off with Saul. He does this on purpose because Saul is the figurehead. Saul is the representative, the king, especially in these cultures at that time. The king was the identity, the pride of your nation and you are tied up with your king and so here the author draws that out and Saul leads out Saul is Israel and so Saul goes out to the battle line and the men of Israel follow him and so the king's role was to lead the way the king was a walking living standard a walking living banner that represented his people and his nation And so his confident presence, on one hand, made the people confident. But, on the other hand, if the king cowered, whatever the king's attitude was, it trickled down, right? Like trumped down trickled economics, right? What Clinton is saying. Similar fashion. The king's confidence or his lack of courage, it would trickle down. A distant, absent king would leak morale. And the narrative continues, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. This is this epic description of battle, better than Lord of the Rings. And we see here, between the two mountains, a valley. Now here, a a literal picture of how battles happen. Both kings and their nations and their pride and glory, they're on the mountaintops. But life throws you off the mountaintops. And you have to enter into the valley. And this was literal history, but here is something to be applied to our lives. A picture, a metaphor, if you will. That we could be on the mountaintops of our lives, but life will inevitably push you down so that you roll down into whatever valley you need to face and perhaps you're even facing today. And the all-important and revealing question when you're in your valley is to ask your own heart, Who is my king? Who is my king? Here's what I mean. Whatever is revealed as your king. For me, if I'm honest, yes, I I live and I walk day by day to make Jesus my king, to to surrender my own heart and my agenda and everything for Jesus to be my king. But in my life, a very close competitor is exercise these days. 
and, and just the endorphins and being able to spend an hour on the bike or go jogging and, and just the sweat. I, I feel great about myself. But in this past week, or almost two weeks, as our family has been facing its own little anxiety and stress of its own in the aftermath of a, of a crazy car accident, that king of exercise, it failed. I, I tried to escape a little bit and, and find some reprieve and, and, and exercise, but it did nothing for my soul. And in fact, it just created more anxiety. And so in each of our lives, we have a king in our heart. Something that we look to, that, that is priority, some non-negotiable compelling force in each of our hearts, the way we approach every day, a top priority, an unstoppable force, something that is supreme in each of us. And this force either causes, when we face those valleys, when we face the battles, just as the people look to King Saul. Is our king going to be confident and courageous and mighty and go down and face the Philistines? Just as they look to their king in each of our hearts, we automatically, as we face our battles, that king will pop itself up. And if your king, for example, is just people's perception, what people think of you, then that king, that that, that drive to, whether it's to please people or look a certain way, it will lead you into battle a certain way. The point is that we all have some ultimate motivation that pushes us to fight our battles. And, and it will cause us either to fight or to freeze. Because some of us, when we face our, the battles of our life, we, we just become numb and we don't know how to face it and we just try to deny it or we, we flee and we run away and try to avoid the situation altogether. Another way you could put it is just your coping mechanism to bring it down to earth. And that coping mechanism in the battles of life is most likely your functional king. Well, the narrative continues. Verse 4, And they came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath. And Goliath was not their king, but he was their functional king. Because he was this mighty man, and it's not outrageous to think of a nine-foot person. And we have basketball players that uh, tower at seven and eight feet, and, and so nine feet is, is not out of the question. But I imagine he was probably twice the size and muscle of Shaquille O'Neal, because he wore a 125-pound coat of mail. And for him to be agile in battle, he must have just been, just muscles must have been like watermelons off of his arms and, and chests and so forth. But here's another king-like figure, Goliath. And the Philistines are so confident behind this functional king, this champion. And the author leaves us no doubt with his description, wearing this 125-pound coat of mail, his spirit says was 600 shekels in weight, which is basically 15 pounds. And so his spear was like a, a shot put. And so he had enough strength to hurl a shot put so intensely with such focus and, and power and accuracy that he could use that in battle to spear someone. Our Olympians today struggle just to heave a shot put a certain distance and it's just brute force as opposed to pr 
warlike precision. And so the author leaves us no doubt to this ominous, demoralizing presence that Goliath brought with him. And so take a moment in your life. I'm sure there are certain types of Goliaths in your life that just when you are in face with them, they defeat you. I know I have my own. And just even this week, experiencing uh, one of them, where it came into uh, just came into a circumstance uh, um, during the day, and, and I just felt defeated, just completely sapped. And this was the effect of Goliath on the people of Israel, and even on Saul himself. In verse eight. This defeater, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, Goliath... For everything he was, an enemy of God and just uh, spitting in the face of the Israelites and God, he was actually quite an astute theologian because his challenge here, he understands, or at least a great psychiatrist, because what he understands here is the whole notion of kingship and headship, that our lives are driven by that one functional king in our hearts. And what he's basically saying is we all know how this works mono e mono i'm here to represent the philistines and you just need to we don't even need to have the armies battle each other i have the authority here in the philistine army and really functionally the philistine nation you just send out one person to represent yourself and we'll battle it out no need for all the other men to battle it out We'll just settle this mono e mono, authority versus authority. And here, here's why it's, it's a good theology or even a good psychology, because in each of our lives we have that one thing. And perhaps another competing uh, priority or desire comes into our lives, and then they battle out. Just a, a real practical example. It's a bit of analogy, but it also illustrates what's really going on, how this works out in real life. And one aftermath is that we had to decide whether we're going to get a new car or a used car, but we had to get a, a second car for Linda. And as I was perusing the, all the ads and so forth, and Honda had a certain promotion, and then I went to Hyundai, and Hyundai had a better promotion. And so they're competitors, and based on the better offer or, or one priority overcoming another, you decide, okay, I'll go this way. But perhaps more significantly, in terms of our desires, our affections, or perhaps if you drive your life by fear, perhaps you fear one person at work, but then you fear your boss more. So because of that greater fear, that functional king in your life, your decisions and priorities are shaped by that greater fear. King versus king. Priority versus priority. Supreme motivation versus supreme motivation. And one king will always win. That's what Goliath is explaining here. 
It's like God is trying to speak out to Saul through Goliath. The second question then, how dependable is your king in the battles of life? So first, we need to identify who is our king or what is our king. And then when we identify that, we need to ask, how dependable is this king? Your ability to overcome and win the battles in your life is commensurate with the strength, wisdom, and mettle of that king. How well it can stand up against the duresses of life's battles. In verse 10, The story continues, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This is Goliath to Saul and to Israel. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. In the original language, that word dismayed means defeated. Their spirit was crushed. Their energy, their life was just completely sapped out and greatly afraid. So Saul here, it's a sad story. His shining as a star just lasted a brief moment and he he just continues to spiral downward and getting darker and darker. And here Saul is sadly as the poster child again for an inadequate king. And notice again the author He leads out in verse 11. When Saul and Israel heard, the king first was defeated and all Israel followed in his footsteps. So how well does your king, your functional king, stand up against the duresses of life? How does it respond? And it's not so much that perhaps it just fails, But perhaps it's a king that causes you to go an unhealthy, aggressive, angry route as well. A destructive route. But here, Saul, he cowers in fear when faced with this defeater giant. And again, in verse 19, the author focuses on Saul. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. The text says that 40 days of this was going on. So just to get the timeline in your head, the Philistines come, day one. Goliath challenges King Saul and the Israelites. And no one responds, no one steps up, the least of which Saul. And then 40 days, what happens? They actually skirmish. The armies come into the valley And they're getting wounded. They're losing men and resources. They're getting bloodied and tired. The battle could have been finished one way or the other if he had just stepped up. The king had stepped up and faced this other authority. But no, he goes off and fights a side battle. He doesn't fight the main battle. He focuses on a distraction and somehow trying to live out his kingship, feeling good about himself, that they are actually fighting. And that's why the author includes this little detail, this curious detail, that they actually end up fighting in the valleys. Now, practically speaking, in our everyday, don't we do that? So many times when we have an argument with a loved one, when we uh, have difficulties at work and misunderstandings, 
we're so good at just focusing on all the minor, the surface minor issues. And we have a hard time generally as people getting below to the main issue, the real battle of that king versus king and, and solving the main issue. And here it's no different. They're distracted and fighting this other lesser battle that, that they shouldn't be fighting. And the effect each time, in verse 24, after 40 days of fighting, Goliath comes out again. And perhaps Goliath having more sense than, than Saul. To, and he, it's not in this text here in verse 24, but right before, Saul reissues the challenge. He says, come on now. Let's just settle this. And he repeats the challenge. And then verse 24 is the response. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. At this point, they weren't even looking to the king. There's no mention of Saul. And that's how much confidence they had lost even in their king. Now David enters. And as he enters, the men of Israel are speaking. And they're talking to one another, probably griping, complaining, uh, also just um, venting their anxieties. And in verse 25, one of the men of Israel uh, describes what the king would do. King Saul, his incentive. Have you seen this man who has come up, Goliath? Surely has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter in marriage. Sorry, I don't have the rest of the text. And will free his family. And that meant, basically, it was a tax incentive. To be freed was to have to pay no more taxes. And this man would also be given position by being brought into the royal family. And I imagine the daughter was beautiful and so pleasures and given power and possessions and not having to pay taxes. And so here we see King Saul providing a certain motivation, a, a worldly rewards motivation. And that's, I mean, we, we're... Really, this is speaking out to us. How often is our king the desire for more possessions and pleasures or, or power and, and just people in our lives? And so Saul, he, he's, he's speaking to us. He's saying something that identifies with us. And the best that Saul could do was to offer this material motivation. So again, back to the question of who is your king and how well does your king stand up to face the battles of life? In each of our lives, there's going to be a cascade of giants. Increasingly, there will be greater and larger giants in life. Increasingly more challenging and difficult situations. And you might think, I'm pretty strong. I can overcome whatever life throws my way. 
But at some point, every one of us, no matter what or who your king is, it will now face the giant of life, which is death and accounting for your sins before a perfectly just God. That's what we need to to reflect on here. As Saul, he's giving another motivation to fight this giant and trying to motivate some other person to fight this giant. He himself needs to face this, but he can't. And in each of our lives, there will continually be more and more giants, other giants, increasingly larger giants. And so now we begin to see hope. So we ask this last question, what does your king do for you in the battles of life? Perhaps as you've been listening to the message thus far, you've already been able to begin to identify certain kings in your life. And what does it do for you? Does it actually give you peace? Or does it just increase the stress, make you more angry and destructive? Or does it make you just flee or deny and and not confront the real issues? What does your king do for you in the battles of life? Now David enters at some point here, and he was infuriated. He was even disgusted and, and just offended by this challenge, by this Philistine who was defying Israel and Israel's God, his own God. In verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. What words had David spoken? David had spoken the words, who is this that defies the God of Israel? I imagine David was the very first person that actually stood up to this Goliath, verbally at least. And no one had even spoken a challenge. And David comes because of this faith, this belief, this intimate, personal, just belief consumed by God's love for him and his love for God. He responds in defiance against Goliath. And notice what happened. These words, they began to ripple. They began to echo. And there were murmurs amongst the army. And then finally, as they were repeated, they got to Saul. And Saul here, hearing for the first time an actual courage, he sends for David. And what does David do? He says, let no man's heart fail because of him. David speaks these words because of his sight, his, having his sight set on God. He says, let no man's heart fail because of him. David is the next king in Israel. And in some sense, the true king. And so David, as the true king, what did he do? He was an encourager. To encourage means to instill courage into someone because of your words and support to them. Now, while David was an encourager, Jesus is the greater encourager. 
And it's even ultimately his word that David was looking to. And his words were just an echo of God's words, of his promises. And so as we look to Jesus, we can be encouraged so that none of our hearts may fail in the valleys of life. In verse 32, David says, Your servant will go and fight. This is so astounding, so refreshing. Here is a little shepherd boy. And what he is demonstrating here is an example. He goes as this shepherd boy to fight the battle. He sets an example. He is an example. He steps forward and says, follow me. And David, we know, he himself looked forward to someone greater than him. The greater shepherd who is also the example who would step forward and fight for us by going to the cross and fighting death and being resurrected from the tomb. In verse 34, And David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Now I want you to notice carefully, David here, he's not saying, he's not giving his own version of Invictus. He's not saying, I'm the master of my own soul and captain of my own fate, and it was my muscle and courage that destroyed these lions. Yes, he he was able to do that, but his focus isn't there. He's giving a comparison. He's saying, just as God gave me the strength to be able to protect my sheep and defeat these animals, so God will even more greatly handle Goliath. Goliath will be just a little cat, a little mouse in the hands of God. David's focus is on God and God's strength. Verse 37, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. And so David makes it clear, even when I was fighting that animal, it wasn't me, it was God. He gave me the strength. He gave me the wits, the courage. And in the same way, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The focus is on God. See, David, he was a stellar, a beautiful example of dependence on God. And Jesus, he is the greater dependent. That's something to just soak in. That's our Savior. Yes, he was fully God, Son of God, divine, but he was also fully man. And in his humanity, he was filled with the Spirit. He could only accomplish what he did for us on the cross. To bear our sins, to carry the cross up Golgotha, to be resurrected by the power of the Spirit. Jesus in his humanity fully depended on the Father's love for him and the Spirit's power. And so Jesus is the great dependent as well. 
And in verse 38, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze and he begins to describe this armor. And the author's point is this. He is likening him to Goliath. Goliath who had this massive heavy armor and the the bronze spear and so forth. Saul was trying to put David on the same level to fight with the same tactics, the same mentality as Goliath. To put it another way, basically in the world's strength. In the world's strength. What does David do? He says, I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. And the meaning of the word tested is that they are not proven. This armor, it's not proven. I can't trust it. And so what are the worldly things that you depend on, that you look to for security and strength? David's words to you and me would be, in fighting the battles of life, these things, they are not proven. They will fail. And instead, in verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was, his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. What's the picture here? He went as a shepherd. He went as a shepherd. That's who he was, a shepherd boy. David faced Goliath as a shepherd without armor. And Jesus, he's the greater shepherd king who confuses the world's understanding of power. Let me end with this. In verse 57, Saul asked this really confusing question. Remember, David was Saul's music therapist. And David and Saul had a lot of face time. They knew each other. And Saul knew that he was the son of Jesse. But after this great feat of defeating Goliath, in verse 58, and Saul said to David, Whose son are you? young man. And this is a confusing question because Saul knew who David was. Or he was just so just acquainted with Saul or with David but did not know him truly that Saul could ask this strange question. Now like Saul to David This is the question we need to ask of Jesus. Whose son are you, Jesus? Whose son are you? But unlike Saul, I hope you are not merely acquainted with Jesus intellectually or just coming to church and doing the church thing, but that you know Jesus as the son of the living God. And so to end, how do we face our giants? You cling to Christ by faith. You acknowledge that He has defeated the greatest giant in your life, sin and death. And as you walk with Christ, knowing He's defeated the greatest giant, the tallest giant, then as you walk through all the valleys of life, the lesser giants, and when you ask, do I face illness? 
And as you're clinging to Christ by faith, Jesus suffered physically and knows your pain. Do you face stress? Jesus sweated blood because of his anxiety before he was crucified. Do you face rejection? Jesus was forsaken by his Father to bear the sins of the world. Do you face loneliness? Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but Jesus had no place to truly call home. Do you face death? Will you face death someday? And the answer is yes. Do you face a perfectly just God who will bring your moral record to account someday? Every other king will meet their match sooner or later for certain when they face death. And those kings will fail. But Jesus is the one king Like David, his victory became the people's victory. And Jesus' victory becomes your victory. Let's pray.